the 52nd episode of Downtime Podcast. Today, you only have Elisa on the line, but I have a very special guest with me. independent game developer from Canada in the Toronto, Ontario area. And not only does he create games, but he's also a comic book artist and just like very well-rounded and does like has a lot of different projects on him. So welcome to the podcast, Benjamin Rivers. Hey, thanks for having me. Yes. And thank like I said before, thank you so much for joining on the podcast. Um, I've played Home and Alone with you before, so I'm like really excited to talk to you about all of these things. Can't wait. Let's, yes. go, let's go dig those things up. Get some, <laughs> get some good deep dives going on. So just to start off the podcast, um, you can talk a little bit about your background growing up and before you got into game development, uh, like what games you played and what inspired you to become a game developer. Oh, sure. Well, I was, I'm not young anymore, sadly. So my first video game console <laughs> was an, an television. And it was a hand-me-down console that my brother played. Uh, and then I got when he was, he was older than me. So he was off doing other things. And what happened was uh, after the video game crash of the uh, early 80s, in the mid 80s, you could buy games for consoles like that super cheap. And my mom took me to um, a Woolworths at the time in northern uh, northern Manitoba, Canada, and basically just, we just bought like a box full of games for I think they were about two bucks each, and I kind of just started digging into all these titles that I'd never seen before. Some of which became sort of my favorites for for life, uh, and then from then from that point, I started thinking about what kind of games I wanted to play, and then I started designing uh, games on paper, old and television games. Oh wow. And that was kind of my first foray into quote unquote game design, even though I didn't really uh, understand it at the time. <laughs> was there a specific type of game that you were creating or were you just kind of like try- just trying to flesh out all of these ideas that you had? The one I remember, and sadly, I do not have this uh, design document anymore, but I designed a <laughs> River City Ransom style, like urban street brawler. I have no idea why. And so I think I used graph paper or maybe it was just like leftover note paper from like my dad's office but i had just stitched all these pages together to design this like really long brawler um scenario and if you remember the intellivision most of the humans on that console kind of look the same they all just sort of look like intellivision man and so i designed a version of intellivision man except that you know, i don't know he had brass knuckles or a baseball bat or something i really don't know what that was about that's that's pretty exciting i was about to say i'm currently playing a brawler a brawler ish right game right now i'm playing the yakuza series right yeah this and was that... yeah this is like 1983 yakuza <laughs> that's exciting creating those stories and getting first into game design, how did you start, I guess, developing your skills to become a, a full-fledged designer? All of it was kind of accidental and through a variety of means. You know, it was kind of like I was circling a drain and then eventually, eventually I found it uh, <laughs> because I had no training. I don't have too much training in anything, actually. I'm mostly self-taught. Um, but I went to school for graphic design, so that's sort of where I got my... Uh, honed my design skills, my business acumen, uh, you know, working for a company that I worked for for about almost seven years and at various freelance gigs and other placements. And 
I kind of got to learn the really real world through all of that, which is everything I owe to to sort of my success today as a game de- developer was because of being able to work in a company and work alongside really smart people and understand design and business and a creative business, especially, which of course video games are. And prior to that, you know, learning things like art and whatnot was all just, just brute force and having no idea what I'm doing <laughs> and, and just struggling through a bunch of trial and error and figuring things out. Um, but sort of in the nineties, what happened was I got access to, uh, creating uh, uh, game mods and levels. And that started with Wolfenstein, where I realized oh, wow. you could make your own levels. And I didn't have the capability to do it just then because um, I didn't have a computer till a little bit later. But I used to design levels on graph paper and like build out Wolfenstein maps. And then eventually I got access to do that and I did. But the big thing for me was making Doom levels. Uh, when Doom oh. came out, it, it had an editor that came out and... Um, uh, I created schools. I created, you know, these like epic environments. I tried to make levels as big as my crappy 46 could allow and, um, and did the same thing with Duke Nukem 3D levels and, and went on from there. So that was my first taste of actually building, uh, a thing for a game that was a real, uh, a real playable product. And we used to, you know, again, dating myself, we used to take floppy disks to high school design little labels for the levels that we made and the little um, wad um, description documents and all that kind of stuff. And then we would trade them, you know, so we had to make a level that would fit onto a single floppy disk or else you couldn't share it with anybody. Like those original mods that you're talking about with Doom and uh, Wolfenstein, what language were you using? Nothing. You were just using an editor. Oh, Uh, wow. So for Doom, there were things like Doom Ed, and there was a bunch of other ones. I think I had the one that was, I don't think I used the good one. I think I used the one that was harder to use. I think maybe the good one didn't come out till a little bit later. Uh, I think the good one was Doom Ed, but I kind of forget now. Well, with Wolfenstein, I absolutely forget what programs they were. Um, there were usually DOS programs that you would launch. And in the case of Doom and Wolfenstein, there was nothing, uh, there was no way to preview your work. You kind of just... Trial and error. (laughs) Yeah, you use an interface, and if there was an error, like if two different vertices did not connect correctly in Doom to form two connecting walls, that'd be an error because the game couldn't run. Uh, And the only way to do that would be to save your project, quit, load up Doom uh, in DOS with the WAD, you know, using a command, and then try to, um, and then see if it loaded. If it didn't compile, it would give you an error, and then you would know that, oh man, I screwed something up, or my sector isn't uh, laid out correctly, or some other nonsense like that and then have to do everything over again and then do it all over again the uh build engine for duke nukem 3d was so revolutionary because you could actually go into the editor uh and preview what you were doing in real time which was just felt like cheating almost it was amazing <laughs> this is hours hours of your life saved not having to recompile things and test them and all that kind of stuff which ironically is that sort of feeling and experience is what i go through every day all over again just with my own games now from this point of creating mods, and that was like the first time you were creating games, and I know you started. You said that you started off as a at a company. At what point did you kind of realize that you wanted to try to create something by yourself? So what happened was around 2007 or so, a bunch of things converged, uh, especially around here in Toronto, and a lot a lot of that was that some people who were um, essential to the local art scenes and music scenes and other sort of creative circles were creating these 
events that also had video game related stuff in them, like mods, hacks, weird physical uh, installations, very sort of artsy stuff. And then at the same time, um, some people were organizing uh, these workshops that you could attend to teach people, especially who uh, people who weren't natively programmers to, to, I guess, just get, get their uh, hands dirty and, and figure out how to, how to make a game. And, then a bunch of other developers who had been around longer, like MetaNet uh, and whatnot here in the city, had started realizing, hey, there's other people here like like us. We should reach out and start hanging out with them. And so all these things over a period of a couple of years converged. And then we end up getting things called uh, like the Hand-Eye Society, which we still have today. Okay. Uh, for s- sort of um, arts-based programming of just get, just getting people together every month to show off stuff to meet. And then you got to realize, oh, my God, there's like a ton of other people here making games and then you got to meet sort of some of your heroes and you got to meet people you'd never met before and see the up and coming group and so i got to actually make my sort of first real full games at um at this incubator program which was sort of all circling around this the same community we're really lucky in the city that we have an incredible arts community we've always had a really strong creative uh, community in general and people in toronto are also very driven just to do stuff with that and you know it's rare that someone just sits around and says well i i don't really want to meet other people who do this stuff that i do <laughs> uh so thankfully these things all just kind of happened and it kind of kicked started all the um rather large indie community we have now i didn't realize that toronto had such a huge indie gaming community if you uh if i showed you a screenshot list of all the games on steam that are made here including some of the bigger selling ones it might blow your mind that's really that's really cool what are some examples just out of curiosity uh big ones include of course like n plus plus and all the very variations of that uh rogue legacy um oh god i could go on forever there's so many sword and sorcery which is one of the biggest ones guacamole uh sound shapes um, even Graceful Explosive Machine, which came out uh, at launch on Switch. Uh, tons of stuff. You know what's really cool is hearing that especially a lot of the developers are teaming up together and creating a community to support each other. That's a that's mm-hmm. that's one thing that I kind of don't hear often. Or it does happen in in just the computer science um communities, but oftentimes a lot of people don't kind of don't like helping each other out. So it's really cool to hear that there is a community like this that's very strong and still running. Yeah, from what I understand, we're also fairly unique in the world and that just <laughs> the, the the size of the city and the amount of people who sort of take action is is tends to be in our favor. Got it. What are some pros and cons of being your own uh Solo creator versus working at a company. Okay, I mean, obviously the biggest pro is if you want to have creative control and you have your your sort of own trajectory that you want to promote, you obviously can do yes. it. And of course, the biggest con is that you get to incur all the risk and all the other um, weight that comes with that. And what I always tell other people who uh, who want to make indie games is that... You know, I've, I've had students who want to like start companies right out of school and I say, oh God, no, don't ever do that. You need to have like at least five years working for other people in a variety <laughs> of spaces because you do not have the skills yet to do this. It has nothing to do with how well you can design a game or how organized your design docs are or, you know, how good of a 3D modeler or, or whatever. You need like that practical, a practical, like real life day-to-day experience like your mom and dad would basically tell you to do, like just about 
paying bills on time, like organizing <laughs> things well in advance, being an acceptable human being like 24 seven. There's a, there's a ton of stuff that comes with running a business, especially a creative business. I think it's actually tougher than a lot of other businesses um, because of the sort of personalities that are often involved, but you have to learn all of that. And the hardest part about being an independent game developer is, you know, I wear a dozen hats every day. I'm not just, I'm just like sit down in my pajamas and like doodle game design ideas on paper. I'm, you know, paying bills. I'm running game tests i'm uh like prepping business stuff for like months years in advance i'm worrying about like are we gonna how long are we gonna be able to survive on x is something selling is something not selling like also is this bug that i'm trying to fix uh fixable and what's my artist saying you know he has questions and (laughs) is this other stuff getting done on time and you can see how it gets out of control very quickly Oh, I can definitely see that. I was about to say, especially for home, where essentially you created everything. You even, you even created the sound design for home. Yeah, and I mean, there's there's almost like everything you do, every project you have, there's a set number of sort of skill points you're going to put into that project. And sort of where you allocate those points depends on your skill set, the skill set of the people you're working with, you know, if you are working with people uh timeline all that kind of stuff and the thing with home is that you know the skill points were all right in front of me because i didn't have anyone else to work with and i didn't know um what i was doing essentially (laughs) so one of the ways i dealt with that was that a lot of the sounds or rather the vast vast majority of the sounds were all uh taken from royalty free websites and sampled that way and then edited and altered and designed uh later on as i sort of saw fit and once I realized I could do that, I said, well, you know, on the any day of the week, I can make a game. I have the ability to basically make everything from scratch and use stuff like this to to do it. And I don't need this huge team. And it was incredibly um, very freeing, but also very uh, uh, the responsibility to do right by the fact that you have this control was very obvious. And that's kind of what made the project uh, fun in the end. It's definitely a lot more common, not just with game development, but for anyone to just kind of be their own business and be their own freelance worker uh, after realizing that, you know, the tools are in front of you. And if you put the time to like looking things up and like learning about it, you can act like try to manage everything by yourself, even if it even if it is hard. Uh, I like that idea that. Um, you are capable of having your own creative control. Yeah, the opportunity is out there for so much, but you know, again, with great power comes great responsibility. Going now, going a little bit into home, uh, which is the first game I actually played from you. Oh, so I, I do have to say this. Um, it's crazy because I actually played it on the Vita, which I don't know if that's a common platform for people playing your games because it is on mobile and PC, and then. It's also on PlayStation 4, but I actually have a Vita, and that's where I played it for the first time because it was on the store. For me, it was a really cool experience. One, because I liked how it was a story that even though the experience was short, I got a lot out of that experience. And it utilized a lot of things that really enhanced how I played it, such as playing with headphones and really like sitting down to finish it all in one playthrough. So I just have to say that like, I really enjoyed that aspect of it. That's great. No, that's, I thank you both. Hey, thank you for playing it, of course. Um, but thanks for sort of uh, 
using those suggestions and finding out that was actually helpful because that was something that you always feel weird asking people to do because they're <laughs> going to think you're a complete douchebag. But uh, it seemed like the right thing to ask. And almost everyone who says they enjoyed the game the most uh, has said that they did that. I feel like you accomplished a lot in this game, but especially like even though the graphics were pixelated, it still like it still gave me that very eerie vibe to it. That's great. And I yeah, and I I just wanted to learn more about like your thought process of, you know what, I'm actually going to make this pixelated and you know what, I can make this scary even if it is pixelated. Yeah, well, as I said before, I spent a lot of my sort of previous career in the design space, like in graphic design and web design and production. And in that world, you work on everything on a project basis. So you get a brief from a client, there's a goal that you have to achieve, and then everything you do is towards that goal. So when I got to doing this game, um, I realized that that was just a mode of working in that I was very comfortable with and I understood. So rather than just, you know, blue sky, a game idea, I thought, okay, well, I'm going to create a design brief. I'm going to treat it like a jam game or like something that someone has handed me. Uh, and here are some parameters. And so the goal was uh, to make a, a horror game that was unnerving, unsettling, hopefully uh, like mentally very stimulating, um, and to prove that you could do it with very low lo-fi graphics. So the joke that I always say is like all the nasty posts that I got when the game released were people arguing back and forth over a whether I was a crappy programmer or whether I was a crappy artist. So the answer was well maybe both, but the whole point is I got got the project done. Uh and I originally the game originally was meant to be and you can find Im- images of this online as well, but the game was originally meant to be much lower res, the original prototype. Mm. And in fact it was also I sort of ran with it and then my wife said, "You can't do that. That's like too you've gone too far." <laughs> she's like you and i said okay what about this and i showed her essentially a simplified version of what the final game looks like and she says okay that's okay you can do that (laughs) so i did that and uh the game basically got a complete graphical overhaul halfway through development because i designed everything with the original sort of resolution and then uh, my wife nancy put her foot down and i said okay and i had to go through and reconfigure uh, everything for the new, like, higher resolution and whatnot. But the game is so low res, it's hilarious. Um, especially considering, yeah, what I'm sort of billing it as, like, as a big, scary experience. But w- what you said to me is exactly what I hope uh, people get out of it. Because, you know, using sound design and hopefully using your imagination uh, was also part of the design brief. Because it's my belief that, especially when you play narrative-based games or something that's really meant to sort of tap more into your emotions than, say, just Twitch skills, um, players bring 50% of their experience to that. If you're not yes. if you're not invested, then you're going to be disappointed no matter how much I do. So knowing that, I thought I can offload 50% of this idea onto the players if I do it right, you know, in the correct way, and then they will buy in if, if things are presented correctly, uh, which means that I don't have to spend you know, an extra six months or eight months um, uh, messing with the graphics because I'm not sure that they're going to work in this format. What you were saying about the player experience, um, for me, like the very ambiguous, sort of ambiguous ending, even though I did get a certain ending, uh, it was still up for interpretation in my own head. And it's kind of what I make of the story after I complete the playthrough or like while I'm playing through it. So I do, I do like that idea or I agree completely with the idea that as a video game player, 
that I'm putting my thoughts into this experience as well. Right. And everybody does this when you play games. What's so funny is that sometimes the comments you hear, not just about home, but about other games, uh, can be very contradictory because a lot of uh, players will talk about how they love certain online multiplayer games and whatnot because they get to sort of infuse like their story and their kind of life into the experience. And then I'll get often get players of those same games sort of like talk about the game on the forum for home and be like, well, I don't get it because it didn't tell me anything. I'm like, it's it's the same thing. It's just, a, but you're just like alone trapped in a dark room somewhere playing this on a Vita than, you know, playing it online with people. You know what the game kind of reminded me of? Because uh, I actually just played the demo a few days ago. It reminded me of Detroit uh, as well as I played Heavy Rain in the past where a lot of those games are very much um, decision-based and... Um, I'm the type of person I like games because of the story, right? And so I really, so for me, like this Detroit Heavy Rain, like Persona, we can even go like Persona series. I like games where I can sort of create my own fate. Yeah, of course. Yeah, me too. I mean, I'm especially. You mentioned the magic word Persona. That's a huge, oh huge influence. <laughs> Persona Five. I played. Last year's when it came out, I'm actually playing Persona 4 Golden again. Nice. I'm replaying it. It's one of my favorite games of all time. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't know if you read the news, but a couple days ago, they actually announced that they were no longer going to support physical copies of the PS Vita games um, starting February 2019. So Right. Well, they can no longer be manufactured. Yeah. 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 We got that memo as well. See, I, I feel like I'm an outlier because I love my Vita and I still play it. And there's a lot of games that I continue playing on it. And it went down like this weird path where of kind of like PlayStation sort of gave a weird type of support to it. <laughs> but I but like games like this, uh, like Home and Alone With You, I played on the Vita. Yeah, it's uh, we get a huge amount of fan support for those platforms like the loudest voices are always the vita players oh and they're that's always cool. and they're always uh, very loud polite voices i, I should add not <laughs> not like some other platforms when you see it they're they're coming out pretty strong <laughs> yeah always it's great always in my head it feels like it's easier as an indie developer to publish your game through means of steam or mobile like that trajectory is a lot easier uh how what is the process like releasing for ps4 and ps vita for you well it's obviously uh more complex because you have to do things like go through certification and a bunch of other stuff i'm not allowed to talk about probably (laughs) because of ndas but uh uh it is you have to plan a lot and like that's what I said before, people who want to get into indie games really need the experience of working in places where they get to do all these other like sort of soft skill, you know, yeah. um, get that kind of experience where if I didn't have experience, you know, planning website projects that take six months and have all these moving parts and all these people involved and dealing with schedules and all that kind of stuff, I don't know if I'd be able to deal with a, a console release where you have to plan things. Mm-hmm. You're not planning things a couple of days in advance. You're planning them several months uh, and more, you know, where chunks of your time can be eaten up in in um, in weeks, not hours, where you just know that something is going to take a week before you can move on to the next step or something is going to take several days or, or whatnot because it's a different kind of machine than just, you know, kind of hitting an upload button through Steam and, and going from there. Yeah. 
That's really, uh, I think it's really cool that your games are available through the PlayStation Store. Well, they've been so supportive of us, and I've said this a million times, but they basically approached us. Uh, they kind of scouted Toronto devs um, many years ago. In fact, Valve did as well. Uh, the reason why we were on Steam and some other people got on Steam around the same time was Valve came to Toronto at the behest of uh, Cappy Games, who also works here, um, and uh, introduced themselves to developers. And if it's it's kind of funny to think of now, but they were like, hey, please release your games on Steam. And we were like, well, <laughs> let me think about that. But, uh, but of course, eventually everybody did. Uh, and with Sony, it was the same thing. In the early days of the PS4, just before it launched, they were coming to scout... Um, uh, developers at some events that we uh, people ran here and then just checked out tons of stuff and they wanted home on Vita and I said I want home on Vita and then we talked to our middleware people and said like when do we get to make PlayStation games and I bugged the crap out of them until uh, <laughs> all the sort of planets aligned and it happened and then we got the PS4 and Vita versions of home and of course uh, then along with you. Did you have to do anything different coding wise uh, for it to come out on the PlayStation consoles? Um, so I use middleware like a lot of other developers use. Uh, I use Game Maker Studio. Now I'm using Game Maker Studio 2, uh, which has been out since last year. Uh, and so one of the benefits of using middleware, like all devs know, you know, it means that you can reduce the amount of time you have to spend customizing your code base for multiple platforms. And for sure. no word of a lie, like there are n- nine SKUs of home, I think, when you include sort of Steam and non-Steam versions and hmm. all that kind of stuff. And they're all off the same code base. Like it's, okay. I, I hit some switches, I, I press a button, I compile for the correct platform. And if I haven't screwed anything up, then technically it, it, it should work. But of course, there are lots of little things you have to do. So there's, so every version of home has code for everything in there. And it just uh, does, okay. does what it needs to, depending on where you're running it. To talk about the second game, uh, Alone With You, yeah. I I played through, I think, two of the paths or two of the of the potential relationships that you could right. have gone through. and But I do have... Uh, the game really fascinated me because when I first downloaded the game, it said that it was a sci-fi romance. Uh-huh. But playing it, it did have romance, but I felt like it wasn't, the, in, a, in a traditional sense, the main focus. Because for me, the story was very much about how a space colony passed, out, passed and died out. And kind of the romance part felt secondary. Yeah, that that got a lot of attention around review time. That's for sure. Yeah, but I felt, but I act, I like that because you know I, as much as the next person, I do like a good romance story. But it was like I like how the romance was very much more of when you talk to the holograms and you get to know them. It was more like an organic growth versus like a regular dating sim. It's like this is a potential partner. Right. I'm going to flirt with them right now. <laughs> yeah, my my idea and probably mistake was that I kind of wanted to make a romance story for busy adults, you know, mm. where this this whole part uh, where you're speaking with the holograms and you're getting to know them and you're progressing relationships, like you say, is one part of the experience. It's not the only thing that you're doing, which is, you know, of course, I realize much more in hindsight, um, probably less appealing to people who want specifically romance games. Um, but like something like Persona, you know, where you're doing other things, the idea was that you have, you have sort of a main quest that you're on, but while you're doing those main quest things, what you're probably doing is thinking 
and spending all your mental energy uh, wondering about these people you're ho- you're going to meet later on. Uh, I was about to say, uh, I agree with you, especially like Persona 5, you're, you know, you're trying to solve a bunch of crimes around the town and then you're, but then part of the developing your confidant would say Makoto for, or on, for example, is secondary. It's when it's not part of the main storyline. Right. And that was kind of the mold that we used. It was specifically Persona based, but obviously it doesn't play anything like Persona. It just uses some of the same structure, but in a different way. Yes. And the idea there was that, like with home, the 50% of the experience that a player brings in alone with you is meant to be like that emotional connection where hopefully if we did our job right, and I'm not sure that we did, but this is the attempt, uh, that as you're going through the sort of regular day-to-day missions and you're getting all this information about these uh, colonists and things that happened and you're learning more about the history and really piecing together what was going on, you know, you're really starting to pine for some attention from one of the one of the four colonists or, or maybe more of them uh, because you suddenly either hear something about them that you think, oh, well, now I want to know what they meant. More about said. them. Yeah, or you're just kind of like, I really like them. And I found that with very few exceptions, uh, most people have a favorite pretty regularly. Like they slip into a favorite pretty easily. And I want to ask you uh, who your favorite was. Oh, man. Um, I forgot her name, but my favorite's the one with the red hair. Winnie. Yes, that was the one that I chose. That was the one that I chose first. Right. And how about the second time? The second time, I actually chose the guy with black, like, flat top hair. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, oh my god, I can't remember the name I of the characters. I forgot, I know. Jean. Yeah, so, so those were the two <laughs> characters I played with first. I actually didn't play with the other characters Right. Actually, speaking to what you're saying, I didn't felt a real connection to them, so I just decided to, you know, I wouldn't go through their paths. Each of the characters is meant to represent particular personality types. So mm. usually, if there's someone that I know fairly well, I can kind of guess who they're going to be interested in based on which personality types I think they're attracted to. So it's a bit, it's a bit of a psych psych profile thing. Uh, I had a friend who also played, we played it at the same time, and um, she chose the other girl, the girl with the brown hair. Leslie. Yes. I think that was, that was a girl who was in the planetarium, I think, or like... She was in the agrodomes. Yes. There you go. She was the, like the gardener. Yeah. I liked her. That was really random. I liked her at first, but then I was like, uh, I think I'm more of a Winnie person, actually, now that I'm playing or learning more about their story. That's funny. That's exactly the kind of conversation I was hoping to create. So I love hearing about these kind of stories. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, when you first created those games, did you already know from the beginning that you were going to kind of have delve into different endings and different paths? Or were you writing one story at first and then you kind of realized, oh, but like maybe this ending would work. And then it kind of became a waterfall. It's like, oh, I, there's actually a lot of endings that I would like to see play out so this goes back to a question that i get very often especially on forums and stuff and it always frustrates people when i tell them the answer the uh, and the question is that is there one true ending to home uh and the and i think that goes to what you're saying but the answer is no there was never intended to be one true ending to home there's no canon ending yeah uh, be- because to me that defeats the purpose of that particular game got it it was designed that the true ending is what you believe it is and yes 
and hopefully I give you kind of enough rope to hang yourself with and it all makes sense in the end. So uh, it was always intended to have multiple paths and interpretations. Um, and the way I work, uh, the way I worked at it was that there are five very particularly strong interpretations, at least from the way I mapped out the game and the choices that you make and some of the feedback that you get. And very quickly after I started showing people the game uh, in the beginning, they started coming up with stuff that I'd never thought of, including some really weird stuff that I would... And I just started throwing in little hints of random things that I'd never accounted for so that are still in the game because I thought, well, if they think this is what's going on, I don't want to disappoint them because that's the whole point of the game. So I'll just throw in a few sprites here and there and a couple nods to something and maybe that'll that'll keep their theory going and it's like when you hear people create like a conspiracy theory around something and they're just so convinced because to them like all the math adds up and everything makes 100 percent perfect sense and then you talk to whoever's in charge of whatever they're uh, discussing and they say oh no none of that's true like the answer is you know we made something blue because it was the only color we had and that was it uh so I wanted to feed the minds of people who would create those ins- like insane conspiracy theories and basically make a game for people who love to chew on that stuff. Yes. I really appreciate that because I'm that type of person right. <laughs> who is like trying to think, oh, but like that object was this. So maybe it goes in a different path. <laughs> yeah, I'm totally the same way, which is why I thought it would be, uh, why it would make sense. Um, and for Alone With You, it was that you know, obviously we have the idea of the four um, four holograms and there's some other sort of relationship angles in there as well. So that was obviously meant to be multi-path and that was also meant to feel like um, you get a definitive answer in a couple different ways by the end of the game. However, the real sort of journey that you're on is about your relationship with these people. So yes. how you feel towards them can vary depending on how much time you spend with them versus other people, whether you split your time or you're much more loyal and uh, some of these other answers you give to questions and, and things. What we tried to do with that one, especially for the um, console versions was we wanted to make sure that the trophies uh, encourage you to play the game different ways. So you would start seeing that, Oh, wait a minute. There are things that you can do to, uh, to change how this works and to get a different perspective on things. It's on the home website where people can submit what they felt like their final theory was. Yes, that was an intention from the very beginning. Yeah. We wanted to put that in and it was built into the mobile version as well. Yeah, I remember because I got this one. Okay, spoiler. <laughs> I'm going to spoiler tag this real quick for our listeners. Um, I just interpreted it as he... He was the one who committed the crime and he killed his wife and that the wife was having an affair. And then all of a sudden I go on this website and it's like, oh, they're a figment of his imagination. I was like, what? (laughs) Like it was, it was so hard for me to comprehend like where that came from. And then I had to think back at the story again and then, and then like rethink my theory (laughs) of what everything was. Yeah. There's quite a lot. There's quite a wide range of. Uh, submissions and there are some ones that are still up on the site that just scare the crap out of me because the people who wrote them like I post them as they wrote them and they're in character in universe really dark and disturbing I know. Uh, but they come up with these ideas that I had not thought of or at least sort of angles on them uh, that I had not considered yeah and that's what makes them really interesting that people were into it Definitely. it's like people are basically writing their own fanfic and submitting it <laughs> 
Yeah, man. Ah, I, I love I love narrative games. Right. Well, hey, yes. thanks for playing them and thinking I, that is a good way to do it. So to end the podcast, um, I just have a, f- a few, like, not now we're kind of going into the more, like, fun questions, I guess. But sure. yeah, so uh, what what game are you playing right now for fun? Uh, oh, boy. Well, I actually I actually just finished playing a bunch of Fatal Frame games. I've been playing horror games nonstop for about the past Ooh. eight months. So uh, I just finished playing uh, Fatal Frame on PS2, like the original, and then I played the newest one, um, uh, Maiden of Blackwater on Wii U. And I've also got Spirit Camera, which is a spinoff for 3DS that I'm, I haven't quite finished yet. I don't. Speaking of horror games, I got a suggestion from someone that I should play Alien Isolation if you ever played it before. Yeah, I have played it. It's sort of follows a lot of those games that came out at the time of uh, like the sort of first person Heidi kind of horror monster kind of stuff. I think there's some other games that did it a bit better though, uh, in terms of just like sheer terror. Um, but it's funny how so many of those games actually, like, especially the newer ones that are like first person, you know, like great 3D visuals, all that kind of stuff, how so many of them are basically like direct descendants of old games from like Japanese PC titles from the eighties and old NES games and stuff like that. That's kind of what, what I love is that those, those ideas can definitely come back. I remember playing Fatal Frame for like 10 minutes and then I left the room cause it was a family party like way back. And my co- right. my cousins were playing it, and I walked in because I thought they were playing Final Fantasy. It turns out they're playing Fatal Frame, and then I was like, "Nope, I'm not gonna stay here." It's the wrong FF. <laughs> I know it's the wrong FF. It was. It is a really creepy game, though. Yeah, absolutely. It's really. Uh, there's a lot of things that that game that series got right from day one that I think a lot of people missed, including myself. I didn't play them actually at the time, um, and it. There's still some incredible technical achievements that those games managed, um, even leading up to the Wii U game, that kind of people just never notice, but they're really impressive today. I read on your bio that not only are you a game developer, but you're also a a comic book artist, and you have created your own comic or graphic novel called Snow. Yeah, that was the last book that we did. You're just like, you're kind of doing everything, really. (laughs) I can't. Uh, I have a hard time sitting in one space for too long in terms of <laughs> projects. So definitely, right now I'm working on our th- uh, third title, and then I'm also working mm. on a new comic book because got I just—it's it. been too long since Snow came out, and I gotta get off my butt and get another comic book out. <laughs> nice. I'm just curious. Did you watch Infinity Wars yet? I did. What do you think of it? See, so, okay, here's the thing. I'm a huge comic book fan, but I'm actually not a huge Marvel movie fan. Yeah, that makes um, sense. Uh, I just kind of got bored of them after a while, but I went in and absolutely loved this movie because it actually felt like an old school, late 80s uh, Marvel like cosmic adventure. Yeah. So I was totally on board. I was surprised. I love the whole thing. I think the only comics that I've read before were Captain America, and they were only a few comics. So I'm only watching the Marvel movies, and I made this right. I made this joke, and it was like, you know, of after watching this movie, of all the three in, um, Avengers movies that I've seen, I think this was the only one that was pe- they were actually avenging something. <laughs> That's so funny. I know because if you think about it, the first two movies are about superhero egos of working as a team. That is very true. And then finally, this movie's like, 
Oh yeah, we are actually Avengers. We're gonna finally be exactly what our name is. It was a slow burn to get there, but they finally did. <laughs> I know. For anyone who is interested in uh, being an indie developer and kind of um, interested in being their own one man team, uh, what what are some like advice and recommendations that you have for people starting out? So there's two main things. First, in regards to game development specifically, uh, in order to be a game developer, you have to make games. And that means you have to make a whole lot of them. And the best way to do that is to just get involved with jams, work on projects, whatever you can. It's not about making anything good. Just accept that it's going to take you a long time to make something good. Uh, You just want to keep making stuff. The biggest trick about uh, making a game or really completing any uh, creative project is that you kind of don't, like you don't actually get to cash in your XP unless you finish the project. So you have to go through the whole loop from beginning to shipping. And in, in the case of just sort of working on stuff, shipping might just be finishing the game and showing it to people that you know or demoing it or putting it on itch for free or whatever. That's all totally um, valid. But you have to go through that whole process because just having some concepts for a game or just having like half a level or just having some sound design but sort of not a completed game that... Um, that, that won't kind of teach you what you need to know. So to that, you know, to that end, just work small, make, don't make the game, the epic, you know, fantasy adventure voice we wanted to make, make the, the dumb, uh, arcade clone first, like the one screen arcade clone, and then make 10 more of those until you get better and better, uh, and then start understanding what it is you really want to do. And that's the same if you want to make comics or anything else, you just, you make a one page story. Or one panel story, then a two panel story, then a one page, then a three page, and you don't make a two hundred page uh, graphic novel on your first try. It's just it's just the way things go, and that's totally fine. It's and you'll learn way more, much more quickly, uh, and you'll be able to sort of bound ahead um, because all that experience will add up. And for company stuff, kind of like I said before, the main thing is you're not gonna you're not going to realize what you don't know until you realize you don't know it. And so the best way to be prepared for any kind of experience like running a company or and running your own creative business is to watch other people do it and and talk to smart people. So working for other people and seeing how they do it or seeing how they don't do it or whether you think they're right or wrong, you know, all that experience is valid. Um, and from there, you can actually start, again, leaping ahead and understanding, oh, okay, now I see why things get, you know, uh, scheduled a certain way. Now I understand why we have a milestone um, on certain kinds of dates or with certain parameters in mind. Now I see why, you know, whereas I thought we needed two people to do this job, we have one or three or whatnot. Like all these things sort of uh, um, inform all your decisions later on. And you have to go through that loop a whole lot too. So the more experience you have, um, the better you will be equipped to handle that. But, and on my f- sort of final comment on this, I would say, the best experience you will ever have running a creative studio will likely have nothing to do with the field that you're interested in. And that's why I always say uh, the best experience I ever got and the reason why I'm able to do what I do is because I worked in a kitchen for seven months when I was like 17 and I got to learn the most important uh, skills that I know now, which are um, prioritization, time management, like task prioritization, and then people and management skills, just dealing with a team. Uh, not as a leader in that case, I was sort of the lowest person on the, on the floor, but, um, understanding why we were working towards a common goal, how that worked, what my role was in 
uh, in that moment and then what I need to do in stages, you know, this minute in the next hour during the shift, all that kind of stuff. So don't think that you have to go through like a million dollar game design class or a bunch of other stuff just to learn these skills. If you work um, a quote unquote regular job somewhere, pay attention, follow the people who are higher up, uh, you know, see what they're doing, see how they get things done during the day. And, and you will learn a ton that you can then apply to any business or creative endeavor. Very well said. Thank you so much for joining on the podcast again. Thanks for having me. Hopefully this was, you know, helpful to your readers and at least a little bit interesting. This has been the 52nd episode of the Downtime Podcast, and we'll see you next week. See ya!